While the ushers make their way through the church, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, you see the title up there, Jesus teaches a legalist how to be a loving neighbor. And in quotes, it says the Good Samaritan. Ah, the Good Samaritan. We all know the Good Samaritan. We know the story. And Good Samaritan teaches us how to go out and love those who need our help. And that is really a side point. It is not the main point of the story. And so I ask you this morning, whatever your understanding is of the Good Samaritan, how many things you've read about it, sermons you've heard, if you could set that aside just for a second and understand that though the Bible teaches us in many other places how we're to love one another, primarily this is a story about showing a man who thought he didn't need God's grace that he needed God's grace. A man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if anyone came up to you and said, how do I get to heaven? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You'd be excited, like tee it up. This person wants to hear the gospel. But I assure you, this man in the story did not want to hear the answer. He knew the answer. He's a scribe, he's a lawyer, he's an expert in the law of God. His intentions were to publicly embarrass Jesus, to trap him into giving the wrong answer. We know that the religious leaders were conspiring together to trap Jesus and find a reason to destroy him. So don't assume just because somebody stands up and says, I want to know how to get to heaven, that that's what's actually on their heart. Well, how do you know what's on this man's heart? It says he stood up to put Jesus to the test. That's not a humble heart that's looking to know how to inherit eternal life. This is a prideful, self-righteous, legalist, looking to embarrass Jesus publicly. When Jesus teaches in parables, we've already seen that his intention is not to make truth more accessible, but to hide the truth from people who've hardened their hearts against the clear and easy-to-understand teachings of Jesus. This man was being judged by Jesus for his self-righteousness. By extension, because you're a believer in Christ, and you're teachable, and you have the Holy Spirit inside you to uh, illuminate your mind, there are truths about the kingdom that we can learn from parables. So for believers, a parable teaches a truth about the kingdom, especially in the area of salvation. But for unbelievers who don't want to know the truth, parables are designed to further hide the truth from them. Sometimes we get an explanation of the parable, like the parable about the seeds, right? 
And the disciples say, well, what did all that mean? And Jesus explains it to them. Sometimes we don't get the explanation directly, but we know from the rest of Scripture what the explanation is. And so this morning, I'd like to deliver to you an explanation of what the Good Samaritan parable is really all about. When we see somebody in Scripture who has hardened their heart to spiritual truth, who are who's operating only as the natural man, we like to say, the, the natural man, the fallen man, guard yourself from boo, hiss, look at that guy, could you believe that, and say, where is the natural man that still resides in me? my unredeemed flesh, where do I see the world like that? Where do I need correction? Where do I need instruction? What can I learn from this situation? Remember we said last week that uh, there were four kind of spiritual traits I wanted you to cultivate in order to be a better disciple. And number one was, I need to cultivate the fact, the truth, that I need to return to Jesus often for what? Instruction and correction. I need to go to Jesus often for instruction and correction. And we said, we go to Jesus during the church age by sitting under the preaching of God's Word, by reading God's Word, by attending Bible studies, by being discipled by other mature believers, by having people in our life who have permission to show us where we're missing the mark. This is how we return to Jesus. But it starts with a heart that says, I'm, I'm missing something. I don't know everything. I need instruction. I need correction. You can't be a disciple, or really a discipler either, until you have this heart. This is a rare trait. It has to be cultivated. Not to bash on anyone, but I can assure you that 95% of the time, maybe more, when somebody makes an appointment with the pastor, they're not coming in saying, I'm missing the mark somewhere. I need correction and instruction. Usually their heart comes in saying, I'm upset, I'm hurt. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with my spouse. Something's wrong with this friend. Something outside of me is the problem. Even if you are hurt or wounded, every situation we find ourselves in, there's always a better way, a more godly way, a more mature way to handle the situation. I need help thinking the right thoughts. Even in my hurt, even in my sickness, even in my illness, I need help thinking the right thoughts. I need someone to help me see after they've hopefully wept with me and walked a mile with me to pick the right timing to say, hey, maybe we could look at this from a different perspective. Let's look at this from from God's perspective. I can assure you this man in the story is not there. 
He is not standing up and saying, Jesus, teach me the law. Right? Because it says, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. I had a lawyer come up to me after first service and say, you're absolutely right. A lawyer never asks a question publicly that he doesn't already know the answer to. This isn't a man who's saying, oh, Jesus, teach me how to inherit eternal life. It came out probably more like this. Teacher, so what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In an honor-shame culture, the one asking the questions is the one assuming the place of honor. Ironically, this man is asking God, testing God, not asking God. We should ask God how to inherit eternal life. In fact, there's probably no more important question any of us could ever ask. But he wasn't asking to find the answer. He was asking to demonstrate he knew the answer. He knows how to inherit eternal life. He's the expert. And you can be sure that he believed he met the qualifications already. It was the right question to the right person with the wrong motive. And motive means everything. The right question to the right person, but the wrong motive means this man was not ready to hear the right answer. And so Jesus being loving and compassionate and omniscient and amazing knows that this man's theology needs to be deconstructed before he's ready to hear the right answer. And sometimes you need to do that in evangelism. Sometimes you need to do that in discipleship. Deconstruct. Break down and then build back up. Anyone who's ever done any coaching knows this has to be done. Break them down of their bad habits. If you've been in the military, that's what boot camp's about, right? Break them down. Build them back up. So that's what's going on here. Don't assume what you're going to hear immediately is the answer to the question. No more so than you heard the right answer given to the rich young ruler. Who also ran up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus needed to deconstruct his bad theology. You want to see an example of someone honestly wanting to know how to inherit eternal life. Mark down John chapter 3. Nicodemus going to Jesus in the middle of the night. And before he even gets the words out of his mouth, Jesus already knows what the question is. And basically tells him, you can't do anything. You have to be born again. And then he goes on to give the famous John 3.16. You need to believe. This man, though, was here to embarrass Jesus. Trap him 
and condemn him. How sad. This man had no idea he was so close to God and so far away. So close to God and so far away. It's normal for human nature to assume that we are good people. The natural state of humanity is to assume we are good people because we are all legalists at heart. We're raised to be legalists. You do good things, you get rewards. You do bad things, you get punishments. Good people get praised. They get good report cards. They get gold stickers. This is okay with child training, but eventually we have to understand that salvation works on a completely different system. If it worked on that system, nobody would be getting to heaven. God doesn't grade on the curve. In today's culture, feeling good about yourself is just rampant, right? The self-esteem movement. We call it virtue signaling. You don't actually have to be virtuous. You just have to signal to the world that I associate with virtue. I like the right things on my Facebook page. I hashtag the right movements. I don't have to actually get up and do anything about it. I just have to vote that way. I care about the oppressed. And it's easy to consider yourself good people. I hang out with the good people. That makes me good people. So Jesus has to deconstruct this man's false view of self before this man actually is ready to hear how to inherit eternal life. So let's see how the master does this. I've tried to do this poorly by just coming right out and telling people all the places that they're not good. Let me tell you, it doesn't, doesn't turn out so well. People have a way of getting really defensive and angry. And so we can learn from Jesus here. Jesus is going to tell a story. Much in the same way that Nathan the prophet went to David. And instead of just coming right out and telling the king, you're a murdering adulterer. He tells a story about a sheep. And it draws David into the story because David's a shepherd. And, and then, of course, the big surprise ending. Guess what? You're that man. And he was ready to hear. And this is kind of what Jesus is doing with this parable. Let me tell a story and draw this man into the story. So this man stands up rudely while Jesus is teaching and just says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows how the game is played. And so he turns the tables and let me answer your question with a question. Now I'm in the driver's seat. And he doesn't evade the question. He masterfully preys on this man's pride. And he's like, you're the lawyer. What's written in the law? Instruct us. Why are you asking me? You're the expert. How does it read to you? Or better yet in the ESV, how do you read it? 
the verb there is in the uh, second person. So it can't be the subject of the sentence. How do you read it? How do you read it? And he may be referring to a prayer that every good Jew would read out loud twice a day called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for listen. Deuteronomy 6.4, listen, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Shema is the first word of that verse. So they called it the Shema. And so the lawyer quotes the Shema. And he answered. See, he didn't say, wait a minute, I'm asking the questions here. He's excited to answer. He's excited to show off that he knows the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Theologians are unclear as to when they started adding and all your mind because that's not there in Deuteronomy 6. But this is the way Jesus answered the question when it was posed to him in Matthew 22. And really, that doesn't mean we have like four parts to our being. It's a Hebrew way of saying, love God with everything that you are. With everything that you are. Like we sang, I surrender all. And he also quotes from Leviticus 19.18, just like Jesus did. And love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, Jesus says, on these two laws hang all the law. All the law is wrapped up in these two laws. These are the two that you, you need to focus on. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments is all about. The first few commandments is about loving God. And then the back half of the Ten Commandments, this is how you love your neighbor. How do you love God? By loving your neighbor the way God tells you to love your neighbor. And it's interesting that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, which assumes what? That you already love yourself. In spite of what all the psychologists say, you need to learn to love yourself. You need to learn to unlove yourself. And start learning to love your neighbor the way you already love yourself. Don't assume that somebody who has self-loathing doesn't love themselves. They self self-loathe because they love themselves and believe they deserve better than what they have. Oh, I hate myself. I'm, I'm not pretty. I'm not handsome. I'm not talented. I'm not. That's not the lack of self-love. If you really hated yourself, you'd be happy that you weren't beautiful or talented. I hate myself and I'm glad that I'm ugly and untalented. You know. It's Proof that we really love ourselves too much when we loathe ourselves. There's only one good kind of self-loathing, and that's I loathe myself as a sinner. Beat on my breast like the publican at the temple. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Has God ever taken you to the place where you loathe your sin so much that you wish you could just get away from yourself? That's what God does for us in Christ. He makes us a new person and you leave the old man behind 
and the new man is emerging. The one that God deserves to be worshipped by. Oh God, make me into someone, into a vessel worthy to worship you and give you the love you deserve. That's a good kind of self-loathing. So, this is the correct answer. Jesus really takes the position of authority now and grades his test. You are correct. You have answered correctly. You have answered wisely. Not, that's a pretty good answer or one of many good answers. You have answered correctly. And then he adds this, and it's in all caps because he's quoting from the Old Testament. Do this and you will live. Which passage Jesus had in mind, I'm not sure, because it reads that way in Ezekiel 20.11 and a couple of other places in the Old Testament. But just as an example, it says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Teacher, how, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? It says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Go do it, and you'll live. Go love God with your everything, and you'll live. And your neighbors. And you'll live. If, if that's the way you want it. If you want a system where you keep the law perfectly, and you get into heaven... There you go. Go do it and you'll live. But the legalist, like every good legalist, wants to narrow down some definitions. But wishing to justify himself, right? Self-justification, self-righteousness. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? Just who is my neighbor? According to the scribes and Pharisees, your neighbors were only other righteous people. You only had to love other righteous people. And to be righteous, first of all, you needed the right heritage. So Gentiles and Samaritans are out. We don't need to love them. All right, Jews now. I have to love fellow Jews, but only ones that keep the law perfectly like I do. And you can see the pool of people you have to love is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until the only person you have to love is you, which you do really well anyways. It's a great system. Fortunately, it's not God's system. In fact, they had so made not loving unrighteous people, a virtue that it was in the top of their list of evidence that I am a good person. Imagine that. The teachers of the Bible representing our God who revealed himself to Moses in the cleft as the God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Full of mercy, that God is being represented by people who say, I am holy because I withhold mercy 
from the right people. See how ugly this is? And with God incarnate standing right in front of him. Oh, you don't know what love is. I'll tell you what love is. You don't know the law. Jesus, the the law incarnate. This guy thinks he can school Jesus. And like I said at the beginning of the sermon, be careful that you're not ready to point at this legalist and say, oh, how could he? It's us. That is us. We should know better as Christians, but we slip back into legalism oh so easily. Sinners were to be loathed and avoided at all costs. They'll defile your righteousness. It'd be an insult to God to get cozy with sinners. They were perplexed by Jesus because he was this great teacher and he was obviously doing miracles that were undeniable, but he would go out and he would consort with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. In fact, the beginning of the parable of the prodigal son starts out with this question, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Remember when the prostitute came and cried on his feet and washed his feet with her hair and the Pharisee was thinking, doesn't he know who she is? He knew who, if he really was a prophet, he'd know who she was and wouldn't let her get anywhere near him. So they didn't have a category for Jesus. His teaching sounds biblical and his miracles look like they're from God, but he's not acting like a righteous man whatsoever. Not by our definition. Legalists always look for a narrow definition or a loophole. They narrow down the definition, and then if they still don't like that, then they look for the loophole, the end around. Well, that person's not righteous, so I don't have to love that person. Okay, well, maybe I do have to love that person, but I don't have to love them today because it's the Sabbath. Right? There's always a way out of doing God's commands in such a way that you can self-justify your behavior. In essence, what this man was asking is, so who do I have to love? What an ugly question. Who do I have to love? Not, who do I get to love? How should I love? When should I love? What does love look like? Now, his question is, well, who do I have to love? What's the bare minimum? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You need to love your enemies. It's easy to love the people who love you. It's easy to love the lovable Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Well, that's impossible. I think you're starting to get the picture of where this parable is headed. If we only have to love the people that love us, where's the merit? In fact, I would say that it's easiest to love people who are the most 
like you. And so you're really just loving yourself. You find people who are like you and think like you and act like you and agree with everything you have to say. And I love this person. I love hanging out with them. Until, inevitably, we find something about that person that we don't like anymore. And when it's in the context of marriage, we say, we fell out of love. Well, not to pop your romantic bubble here, but you're not supposed to fall in love. It's something you choose. You choose to love. You die to self and you meet other people's needs. You become interested in their opinions and their ideas and their dreams. We don't love like that naturally, though. That's a work God has to do in our hearts. The problem with this legalist is he thought he did love correctly. He redefined love in such a way that he could actually meet the demands of the law to love God and to love others. And yet the scriptures say in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't love the lovely he loved sinners. So this chap thinks he loves like God loves. He couldn't be any further from the truth. So it's time to help this man see his own ugliness. And Jesus is going to do this through a parable. Now remember another one of the traits we said last week that you need to cultivate in discipleship is that you need to remind yourself that God does the revealing. So Jesus is going to reveal and whether or not this man is given eyes to see will be up to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. We're taking our cues from Jesus in his humanity. He's telling the story out of love and compassion for this man. I usually make the mistake that I can help somebody on my own see their need for repentance and salvation. Anytime I've tried to jump the gun ahead of God, it's turned out really ugly. You get attacked. One time, very publicly. I think I've shared that story with you in the past. So Jesus replies, he doesn't even like say, I'm going to tell you a little story to help you understand. He just goes right into the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. This would be a common scenario going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. By the way, Jericho's north on the map. So he went up to go down. Um, down to go up. But everywhere from Jerusalem is down because it is not only on a peak, but it is the holy 
highest place in Israel. Everything's down from there. Just like everything's down from Tehachapi, right? I'm going down to Lancaster. I'm going down to Bakersfield. doesn't matter what direction I'm going. I'm going down. I'm going from hot to hotter. (laughs) And this road is dangerous. It's steep. There's switchbacks. There's caves. Robbers would hide and waylay unsuspecting travelers. You really shouldn't travel these roads alone. That road is still there today. And it's just as perilous as ever for other reasons. There's like no guardrails. And so the vehicle on the outside is... uh... Notice Jesus doesn't tell us anything about this man other than that... He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was beaten. No identity. Well, is he Jewish? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Samaritan? We don't know. Is he righteous? We don't know. Is he unrighteous? We don't know. You can't tell when you happen upon somebody on the side of the road who's beaten and half dead. You don't know. I'd love to help, but what if he's unrighteous? I'd love to help, but what if he was the cause of his own demise? We run into that problem all the time when there's somebody homeless asking for money. You're like, well, what if he doesn't really need money? What if he's going to spend it on drugs? What if he's... This isn't the story that teaches you what to do in that situation. It's not the intent of the story. The story is merely trying to help a man see that he has an ugly heart. That he doesn't love the way the law requires. In fact, nobody can love the way the law requires. At this point, the scribe would assume, like we all would, that the beaten man was the neighbor. Because the question was, who's my neighbor? And he tells a story about this man. Oh, I see where he's going with this. That's the neighbor that I have to love. That man needs help. If it was me in his shoes, or I guess he doesn't have any shoes at this point, I would want somebody to stop and help me. That would be loving my neighbor like myself. Okay, I got it. But the story doesn't end there. Along comes a priest. And by chance, a priest, a holy man, a righteous man, a man who's supposed to be inheriting the kingdom of God, happens by and he passes on the other side. Well, that's not very loving. And again, we don't know anything about the man on the road. We don't know if he's Samaritan or Jew or righteous or unrighteous. I guess if he was naked, you could kind of tell if he was a Jew or Gentile. But that's not the point. The point is you don't know anything about this guy other than that he needs help. And if it was you, what would you want to have happen? You'd want someone to stop and help. Along comes a priest and doesn't help. And by the man's own definition of the law, this priest who's supposed to be righteous just broke the law of God. 
And before he has time to ponder that, Jesus is in likewise a Levite, somebody who works in the temple professionally, who should know the law of God, also happens by and passes him on the other side. Perhaps the priest and the Levite assumed this man would defile them if they stopped to help. What kind of twisted theology says that God would be unhappy with me if I helped somebody half dead on the side of the road. So the scribe finds himself in a quandary. Well, wait a minute. The Levites and priests, those are righteous people, but they're not acting very righteously here. And because Jesus specifically chose priest and Levite, that forces the scribe to put himself in the shoes of the man who's beaten. That's the way stories work. You tell the story wanting your hearer to put themselves in the position of someone in the story. All good stories draw people into the story, so you're now living the story. Well, I'm not the Levite. I'm not the priest. I guess I'm the guy half dead by the side of the road, and my friends, my colleagues, just passed by on the other side. They assume that I'm unrighteous. Hey, wait a minute. I'm one of you. How could you pass by on the other side? Emotionally, he's starting to track here. Well, who's going to come along next? But a Samaritan. Oh, Samaritan. Just the word Samaritan. To a self-righteous, legalistic hypocritical scribe. Oh, Samaritan. I mean, almost to the point where, like, don't stop and help me. I don't want you touching me. I'd rather die than have a Samaritan help me out. Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, this beautiful word, compassion, literally to take your passions and put them alongside somebody else's passions. People, compassion isn't I'm going to do nice things for people so that they'll think I'm a good person. That's not compassion. Compassion isn't, I'm going to do nice things for people so God will be impressed with me. And he'll like me and he'll let me into his kingdom. Compassion is an honest response to the pain and hurt of a fellow human being. And it only comes from people who themselves know, I need compassion. I need mercy. I put myself in his shoes. I walked a mile in his shoes. My heart breaks for this man. I don't know who he is. I don't know his story. Maybe he was beaten because he needed a beating. Maybe he's a thief. I don't know. All I know is if that was me on the side of the road, I would want someone to stop and help me. And so he bandaged up his wounds and he poured oil and wine on them and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Wow. This is lavish compassion. This This is God's compassion towards us. 
How he lavished his love on us in Christ, not sparing his own son. Pouring oil and wine on our wounds, so to speak. And taking us up on himself. And spending whatever it takes to heal us. And not expecting anything in return. So now the scribe really only has one option. To associate with the man who's beaten. Because I'm not a Levite and I'm not a priest and I certainly ain't no Samaritan. So now we're expecting Jesus to say, that's your neighbor. Because the question was, who's my neighbor? And we're all expecting the answer to be that guy who needs compassion. But Jesus masterfully answers the question that the scribe should have asked. The question the scribe should have asked is, what does it mean to be a neighbor? Not, who do I have to be a neighbor to? What does it mean to be a neighbor? And we can answer that by saying, if you were in distress, what kind of neighbor would you want? Now go be that kind of person. Which was exactly what the scribe wasn't like at all. So Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? You see how brilliant that is? He's not answering the scribe's question. The natural question would be, so who's the neighbor that you have to love? I guess the guy on the side of the road. That's not what he asks. Who proved to be a neighbor out of these three? And you can almost hear how reluctantly the scribe answers, I suppose the Samaritan, but he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He says, I guess the guy who showed mercy. And Jesus just simply says, go and do the same. Fully knowing this guy can't. It's not in his nature. And he must discover for himself that he can't keep the law after all. He needs mercy. He needs compassion. Like the man on the side of the road in the story. But he's like the priest and the Levite. He would pass by on the other side. He's not like the Samaritan, who's a person that they've already decided can't inherit eternal life because they're Samaritans. And so his entire theological system has been destroyed. And that's what we need. We need our false theological systems to be torn down and rebuilt with truth. 
This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. Remember what he says? I was a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, blameless. And all of that, dung, rubbish. It's not only not helping at all, it's worthless. It stinks. It reeks to God. Those things can be good things, but not to build up our case that God deserves or I deserve for God to let me into heaven. The scribe will hopefully discover that he hasn't loved God or his neighbor like this, and he can't. He needs God's mercy if he's going to inherit eternal life. Or, in other words, he should know what the prophet Micah says in Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require, O man? Does he want all your sacrifices? No. Here's what the Lord requires. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This man was far from any of those three. You want neighbors, you have to show yourself a good neighbor. You want friends, you have to show yourself a friend. You want to receive mercy from God, you need to acknowledge that you need mercy. And you do that by extending mercy to others. Fellow human beings... Fellow sinners, lost and blind. And by God's grace, you're now found and you can see. Not on your own, but because of God's grace. And so you can help other sinners who maybe haven't been found yet. Maybe don't even know they're lost. Don't know they're blind. The hardest thing about spiritual blindness is you're blind to your own blindness. I see just fine. No, no, you have compassion on these people. God had compassion and mercy on you. The whole parable is designed to help a self-righteous person see his need for God's mercy and that he can't earn heaven by keeping the law according to his definitions of the law. How loving of Jesus to expose this man's hypocrisy, even if it was publicly. How loving of Jesus. Father, thank you for exposing our hypocrisy and for showing us our need for compassion and mercy. Make us humble, compassionate, merciful people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.